0: It. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, Will and I just got together recently, and um, I had reached out to him about three years ago just to talk about what was happening in the city, some different movements. And the, th- the thing that I love about Will, when we got together recently, was he was able to just share. He said, Russell, um, I don't remember what I shared with you, but I, I need to apologize and I was like, what do you need to apologize for? And he said, I just, I don't know if I was in the right place to share with you about church planting when we met three years ago. And I, I paused. I said, well, you know, I took a lot of great notes. You know, I don't, I don't know. May, maybe you discouraged me at the time. Maybe it was a healthy bit of discouragement that I needed. And he's like, well, either way, I'm sorry. And I thought, I walked away from there. and I thought, how thoughtful. I mean, even to, to be able to think back on that moment and um, I, I think just in Will, I notice um, a thoughtfulness and a gentleness, and of course, you know there's like a massive brain underneath there, right? You know it too, so really, thank you so much for your time and, and um, having me this morning. I was kind of thinking about it too, I was, I, was, um, I was on your website, and I was kind of poking around trying to figure out, you know, who is Crossroads, and then I saw this picture of Will, and I thought, you know what Will is? Will is the perfect cross of Ed Sheeran and Bill Nye the science guy, right? <laughs> Can, can we get with that? Okay, yeah, she's like, yes, that's perfect. All right, very good. Well, my wife, uh, my wife is seated over here, Katie. Um, we're so thankful to be here. We called to the city um, two years ago. And, um, you know, e- each one of us in the room is, is telling a story with our lives. And I, I had to realize that as we were sort of navigating, God, what do, you, what do you want us to do? I was pastoring a church in Kansas City for seven years, and um, things were going great. And I started asking questions like, God, what, what is it that you, I feel this, this uneasiness in me, I'm this stirring in me, what are you doing? And as I respond to that, of course, um, it's dangerous, right? When you actually um, listen and respond to what God's doing, it can be um, terrifying. And so my wife and I, we're like, we're going we're gonna to go after this, we're going to plant a church in the city, we're going to submit to whatever process and, and time it takes, and so uh, we sell just about everything we own. Um, We move into uh, my in-law's basement, which it was not a bad thing at all. It was actually awesome. Um, And we quit our jobs, and then we got pregnant. And so, you know, those are those moments in your life where you're like, I'm not not sure, God, that this is, you know, exactly what I had planned for my life. But we got to the city about a year and a half ago, and I just got a job. Um, I worked at Blue Bottle Coffee. um, But really, my main job was just listening. How am I learning about uh, the neighborhood that I'm living in? How am I just going to exist in this time before we get started in the work of church planting? And then we're beginning to listen and ask questions like, what are the hopes? And what are the dreams? And what are the fears of the community we reside in? My wife had already lived in the neighborhood, but I felt as though I was less of a pastor and more of a cultural anthropologist as I'm uh, picking apart what it means to be um, a part of the city. And um, through time at at Renaissance in Harlem, uh, we had um, just a really great opportunity um, to build and to establish community. And so that's what we're doing now. We're building a a core of people. Uh, We're eating a lot of food together. And actually, the irony is, is in a city like New York that's so fast and so driven, we're inviting people to come in and to slow down. We're inviting people to come to our dinner table and to be themselves, right where they are, and then and then we can help establish um, the gospel, this good news about Jesus, with people. And so um, we're we're getting there. That that's how I like to to think of the, the work of church planting is um, it's kind of a grind. Uh, we're in a season that's a sprint, and um, it's it's going pretty well. So uh, we really believe that this idea, this this reunion, as we're calling it, is really possible for people. So. Um, I want to get into this scripture this morning, and I'll tell you a little bit about me along the way. Uh, You'll be getting kind of a picture of of our story, and um, uh, then we'll kind of pick apart what Jesus is saying here. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible on your phone, or if you, does anybody have a paper Bible? Are there some on the seats? Oh, perfect. There's a few of them in the room. That's awesome. They still exist. And so let's grab those. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. And so here's what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Let's pray. And so God, I love you so much and uh, thank you. Thank you for... um, this outpost of your kingdom here in Bay Ridge. And I couldn't be more grateful to be here today. And so uh, my prayer is, is that as we open your word this morning, that um, you would become real to us. Uh, for some of us in the room, we have questions about who you are. We have questions about your goodness. Um, and I pray that we would bring all of that into the room, God, and that you would meet us here by your spirit. And so may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart, may they be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Uh, so, uh, my daughter just had her first birthday. I think we have a picture here. Yeah. And so, um, the theme of her birthday was the Great British Baking Show. I think that's what the show is called, the British Baking Championship, whatever it is. But my wife is amazing. She's a little bit extra. And so, uh, she cut out these. <laughs> my wife is extra. Yeah, I can call her that, right? I think so. And so, we got together a bunch of family and friends, and we, uh, we have a competition, Uh, it was Team Russell and Team Katie, Uh, we pre-made these cakes, and we had 25 minutes to decorate the cake, and then she was to be the judge. And so we recruited our teams, we made our cakes, and then we presented them to her, and mine is on the left, not bad, but I definitely lost to the one on the right, because my daughter loves blueberries, all right? And there were blueberries all over it, and she's just attacking these and it was an amazing day it, it was honestly an amazing day because it felt like an accomplishment. We had kept our daughter alive for a year all right yeah a year a year had passed right and i've taken I've taken over the last couple of weeks a fair bit of time to reflect uh, what, what is it what does it really mean to be a father? What has changed about my life? How am I different and uh you know I think the other part of it is, is in a busy, busy season like that we're in, we're asking a lot of questions about how do I balance life and family and work, and I don't, I don't want to fail. In fact, I keep telling myself I'm not going to fail at the father thing. That's, that's the one thing I'm not going to fail at. And I'm sure every parent says this after a year of their kid's life, but um, I could have never guessed how my daughter would change my life, and. I started reading, um, I was reading this passage in the book of Matthew, and I think I saw it just a little bit differently. It's sort of like um, standing on Fifth Ave, uh, you know, you're, you're standing on the street and you're looking around, and then uh, the difference would be going to the top of the Empire State Building and, and getting a, a greater perspective. You would see things differently. You haven't necessarily changed much locationally, but you would be offered a different perspective. And I think a lot of us um, in our lives are offered a greater perspective when we move or um, we have a a transition in a job or uh, a relationship, and what begins to happen in these moments of our life is we see the world differently. And I think it's important to know as we're reading the scriptures because scriptures like this can, uh, as we look at them, can be completely transformed, and that's what happened to me as I read Matthew chapter 18 a few weeks ago, and I just want to share some of my own insights uh, in, into what this looks like. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to pick apart what Jesus says. I want to talk about what greatness looks like um, in our time. And, and uh, the hope is is that you would say, I, th- I, think that's, I think that is true. And then I want to talk about some movements that I think Jesus can, can help assist us in. And so let's begin in verse 1. It says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so what's been happening Jesus has been on a road trip with his disciples. They've been following him. He's in, in, invited them into his inner circle, and they've been able to ask him questions along the way, and he's beginning to teach them. And it almost seems like, as you, as you read the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that at every turn, the disciples are not understanding what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is continually turning their ideals on, on its head, turning their ideas upside down completely. And the conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples over and over and over again here in Matthew chapter, I think it's 16, 17, 18, and a little bit further, is about who he is. And Jesus is saying, this is who I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the, I'm the king of Israel. I'm the king of the world. And as the disciples look at him, I, I wonder, are they really listening to what he's saying? In fact, in, in chapter 17, it's, uh, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And it says, and they were greatly distressed. And so Jesus is saying, guys, I'm going to go and die. And the disciples are asking in verse one of chapter 18, who's the greatest in your kingdom, Jesus? It's like, is anyone listening? And I'm afraid that... um, we're a little bit the same way, that we are perpetually asking the wrong questions. You ever ask a, a bad question at a bad time? I, I feel like I, I do this a lot. During college, I was, I was so broke, and um, I knew that lady Sally was going to be coming after me after I graduated, you know? Some of you know our friend Sally May all too well, okay? Okay. And so Sally's coming after me. I know it's coming, and so I have to live on the cheap. And so my friends and I, we would go eat at this Chinese food restaurant. The, the restaurant was literally called Fried Rice, all right? And it was the truest thing to its name. It was in this little strip mall, and you would get in line. The line is, like, out the door all the time, and you walk up, and you can say one of three things. You can say beef, you can say chicken, or you can say pork, but that's it. There is nothing else you can say. And so the first time, I'll never forget, the first time I went there, I'm like, okay, looking at the menu. The menu is beef, chicken, or pork. And I'm like, okay, what do I want? And I get to the front, and I just ask a question. I said, can I get some, like, low main, like, with the rice? And he literally, the guy just looked at me, he says, you, end of line. <laughs> he sent me to the end of the line. I'm not even joking. It was $4.50, and I had to wait again in line. And finally, I understood and I wonder how often in our lives where we're just asking the wrong questions. And it's not like, sometimes I think our intentions are, are not um, bad necessarily, but we're just asking the wrong questions, like relationally. Instead of asking like, should, are they the right person for me? Maybe we need to evaluate first, am I the one that's ready for the relationship? It's just like, it's sort of out of order, or even, even financially, I've, you know, in, in one sense, um, the good question would be, um, you know, how can I save? That's what the culture would say. How can I save? But maybe a better question than that is, how can I give? Like, how can I be generous with the things that I have? Or even thinking spiritually to reframe. I, I think one of the greatest um, dangers in American Christianity is, is to be constantly um, consumed with how am I doing with God? Like, how, how am I loving God? And actually, the, maybe sometimes the, the better question is, is, are you and I understanding how much God loves us? And, and living in that. And so I think we're just perpetually asking the wrong question. And so hold on to that idea for a second, this idea of asking wrong questions. Because there's, an, there's something, um, there's another layer at work in the book of Matthew uh, that can sort of go unseen. Matthew is, is a book um, for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, and, and because of that, you and I can, can really miss a lot of the, the underlying cultural context, but there was actually would have been something really deep at work, and we find it in Matthew chapter 2. It's not up on the screen, but you have a dichotomy being built in Matthew chapter 2 between Jesus and Herod. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 2. It says, Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king. And all throughout chapter two, we're, we're finding out about Herod. Herod is chasing down Jesus, trying to find out who this Jesus guy is, who this Jesus baby is. And then what we find is that Herod is intimidated by the possibility of Jesus stealing power. And so what does he do? It's horrific what he does. He actually has all of the baby boys, two and under, killed. It's, it's, it's a horrific narrative. But one of the things that's hard um, to grasp is in, in this time, in Jesus' time, Herod would have been the epitome of greatness. Herod would have, aside from his horrific event, maybe even prior to that, we would say that Herod would have been a picture of greatness. And so you have Herod, on one hand, he's, who's born of noble birth. What did we just sing about? Jesus born, right, in, 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 a, in like, a, like a feeding trough. And so you have a dichotomy. Uh, Herod represents wealth, Jesus born in poverty. Uh, you have Herod, who's the, the leader of armies. He has this political swagger, and he's, uh, he's, been, uh, he, he's held his throne for 40 years. And then you have Jesus, the leader of 12, constantly moving away from the crowds to be with the Father. Herod, the greatest builder of his day, Jesus, a carpenter, probably worked for one of Herod's sons. And so greatness in Matthew's cultural context would functionally look like wealth, education, social status, lineage, power over other people. And Herod represented all of those things. And ironically, I don't know if much has changed, right? What does greatness look like in our time? And I just want to I just want to examine three things really quickly here. And and as I as I look at these these three things, competency, influence, and more, I think that um, I want you to invite you to think critically. Um, it, it can be more than this. What do you think about greatness? Because that is the narrative that's at work consistently in your brain as. Uh, as you're reading the scriptures, as you're living in your day-to-day, as you're interacting with the people around you, what, what does greatness look like to you? Because I think a lot of times we're striving for these things, but we've never articulated them. And so what about this first one, competency? We live in a time and a place where hard work is praised. Our society values position, achievement, success, control. And on one hand, you have to be careful because um, work, biblically, is a beautiful thing. We're called to work. But equally so, some of us are obsessed. Some of us are driven to this, uh, to this ideal of I've made it. And I'll just, I'll just speak to myself um, here. Um, I think it's sort of embarrassing how insecure we are if we would just peel back a few layers. And the insecurity is in am I good enough? Like, like Russell, do, do you have what it takes to, to get a church off the ground? Like, do, do other people look at you and see you working hard enough? And as you peel back those layers, I'm like, I'm proficient. I want to show that I got here. And the question beneath all of those for me is, do you see me? Do you see me? And I've just been wrestling with what that looks like. Um, I think uh, I, I pastored a church in Kansas City for seven years, and then I moved here, and I got a job as a barista. And best thing that could have ever happened to me. I, I, I mean, I think every pastor should have to take some time off and to work a job that they believe, not, not rightfully, but that they believe is below them. Um, I got a job at Blue Bottle Coffee, and um, I'm a coffee nerd. I, I, I love just um, geeking out over like single origin, pour over, you know, just I'm a nerd. Uh, but what ended up happening is I remember being on bar one day, and uh, my friend and I, we worked at Rockefeller Center, and so he and I are down there. Um, we were making a drink for a customer, and the customer said, um, so what are you guys passionate about outside of here? And my friend said, well, um, I'm, hevi- I'm heading to uh, Harvard Medical School in the fall to um, get my medical degree. And the guy is just, like, shocked back. He's like, wow, that's impressive. And then he looks at me. And, <laughs> and it was this moment where I was puffed up. I was like, I'm going to share what good things I'm doing in this city. And so I was like, well, actually, um, you know, I'm, I'm planting a church. I'm going to start a church. And, you know, we have some good partnerships already. We've raised a little bit of money. And things are actually going surprisingly well. Guy looked back at me. He's like, good luck with that. And he walked out the door. <laughs> so there's this narrative at work of competence. And it pro- it, it drives us to prove our worth and I think if we don't call it out, then we're gonna be confused about what greatness looks like. What else? Greatness culturally is not only found in competency, but in influence. And I wanna be be quick here, but it's about the amount of influence we exert, right? We live in a time of followers. If you jump on Instagram, our eyes are naturally drawn um, to a ratio of followers and following, right? Our, Our eyes are naturally drawn. How many followers Does this person have, and then what we begin to think from there is, um, what kind of crowd is this person drawing? What type of power are they exerting with the influence that they have? I was looking this week at some of the most followed people uh, on Instagram, and the irony that I came to was, if you want influence, then you need competence. If you want influence, you need competence. So uh, one of the most followed people on Instagram, actually the most followed person on Instagram is Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay, well, why does he have influence? Because he's competent in something, right? He's competent at the game of soccer, and so he gets to exert his influence. Now, take away soccer from Cristiano Ronaldo, I don't know, you might have a model or something like that, you know, but probably not the same level of influence. The same thing you could say with Ariana Grande and music or Justin Bieber and music or the Kardashians and whatever the Kardashians do, I don't really know. But there's this exertion of influence that's at work in our culture. And if we don't call that out, then people can leverage their influence for power and power can be used in, in you know how power works in, in our time. And, and the irony about something like influence, actually, I want to say this. I think this is actually really helpful um, in our world is that influence is actually really uh, quantifiable. And so you can actually see how much influence someone has, um, But maybe that falls short. I don't really know. Uh, Lastly, greatness in our Um, time—it looks like. Lastly, uh, this idea of more. We live in a time of unsettling. Um, So in our culture, greatness or success is sort of—it's always just a a bit out of our grasp. And I don't think that we necessarily would take great pride in you know being rich or intelligent or good looking. Though you know some of those things, you're like, oh, you know I would love some of those things. Great. But you don't really take pride in having those things. You actually take pride in having more of those things than other people. If you're more, if you're richer, or if you're smarter, or if you're better looking than other people, and so that's what I mean by more. It, that's what fills you up with that sense of pride. If you were the only person on earth and you had everything on earth, it's not. It's not really exciting, right? The, the excitement or, or the greatness comes from having more than other people. And that seems sort of heady, but let me show you how uh, actually practical uh, that, that is. Um, kids are a really good example of this. Uh, today, you can't just feed and clothe uh, your kids and give them a, a, a good roof anymore. That's If you just did that, you're like basic, right? But no, you have to dress your kid in the latest fad, right? Maybe Maybe they're Kid, their clothes are local or sustainably made or their, their food is, is, comes only from the farmer's market and your kid better be reading by three and of course you know depending on what circle you're in you're probably going to make the wrong choice about breast or bottle feeding sending them to public private school all of these things and so you can't just be you have to be more than everyone else now and so competency influence and more and my goal in sharing these things is not to actually unearth a bunch of, like, shame in you, but for you and I to pause. How is it that we begin to reflect on these things and then ask the question, am I simply adopting the culture's narrative of greatness and not really establishing what I believe greatness to truly be like? Because that's what the disciples are actually doing here. They're coming to Jesus and saying, who's the greatest? Like, I, 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 want, I want to be the greatest Jesus, And so in the middle of this cultural noise, here is what Jesus does in verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so here's Jesus. Disciples ask, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I just sort of imagine this tense moment where Jesus is sitting he stands up. He begins to look around. He's like, I'll show you. Sets the kid down. He goes, that. That's the greatest. And everyone is confused, right? And the word child here is, is, uh, is a little bit misleading. Uh, it definitely means a child under seven, but uh, it probably more likely means a one, a two, or a three-year-old. And so this is not someone that's walking very well, maybe. This is someone he just sits down here and he's like, guys, you want to know what greatness looks like? This is great. That's confusing, right? I mean, th- think about it. And it's a little bit more confusing because um, children, by and large, are a gift in our culture. We look at them and we say, wow, what a blessing that, that is. Uh, when you see a kid on the train, you're like, oh, I, I want to make sure that, you know, the, are they okay? Definitely have my seat. But in this time, a child is not honored like that. In fact, a a child um, is really without any status at all, treated more like property, and never, never, never held up as an example of anything. They would have been thought of as uh, powerless and insignificant, and sadly in this culture, especially if they were a girl. And so, Jesus steps onto the scene And he sets this child in this place, and it's almost as if he said, it's not this child's job to become great like Herod, but it's actually someone like Herod's job to become great like this child. A complete, again, reversal of value. And so what is Jesus getting at? I think he could mean a lot. He could be speaking to the child's innocence. He could be speaking to their gentleness or their simplicity. He could be talking uh, about the the fact that children are are naturally inquisitive, that they generally do what their parents tell them to. Um, Children have a natural love for their neighbor. Jesus could be sort of playing on all of these ideals. But I think there's one thing in particular. And Jesus says, unless you turn and become like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, whoever humbles himself. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is this idea of humility. How is it that you and I look like this child or mirror this child in their humility? And there's a really fascinating word here, and it's unless you turn. And the word turn there is this Greek word. It's strepho, strepho. it's, It's to turn or to turn yourself toward. It indicates a movement. I think what Jesus is getting at is it's a movement to become more childlike. It's something you and I have to actually work at because it's not something that comes naturally to me. And so I want to suggest four movements um, to, that really could assist us in, in becoming more childlike or becoming more humble. And I, I really, I want to pause here and say I think, that, I think that we should perk up a little bit. Jesus says something harsh here. Unless you turn and become like children, this is scary You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's terrifying, right? These are moments where I think that we should be listening really well to Jesus. And this is what really got me thinking, what is it that I can learn from my daughter about the kingdom of heaven? So here are four movements that could move move us towards humility. The first one is this, is from intellect to obedience. From intellect to obedience. And so Jesus takes this child, sets the child in, in the center and says, Unless you turn and become like this child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure the disciples are like, Jesus, this kid can't even spell heaven, all right? So, like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Kids are, by nature, limited in knowledge. They've never been human before, right? They're learning. They're learning to take steps. They're learning to use their words. And in a culture that values competen- competency, influence, and more, intellect becomes increasingly important, Right? That's why we're sending our kids to the best schools and we're thinking about how to educate them because we want to train their brains. And our culture says, take your intellect, and if you can monetize your intellect, you're even smarter and you're even greater. You're even more well-off if you can do that. And and I got to pause here. In one sense, we have to be careful. Uh, The the Greek word for disciple is mathetes. It, It literally means learner. And so learning and growth, I'm I'm, I'm sort of suppressing some of those things. But this is important, right? This is what we're doing right now, right? This is a a, a method of of you and I engaging our brains. We're we're thinking, and so it's important. But I think in a lot of churches, we've made intellect the goal without knowing it. And with that comes spiritual pride. And, And to be candid with you, most Christians are smarter than they are obedient. Most Christians are smarter than they are obedient. It's, it's sort of like this. I um, I just finished yesterday um, a month-long sugar detox, and um, it's not easy, all right? It's, it sounds funny, but it, it was not easy. Uh, about a weekend, I'm, like, shaking. I'm in a bad mood. My wife's like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I don't know. I think it's the sugar, like, you know, being pushed out of me, you know, and i um, I, I, had, I had been wanting to do this because I have had issues with my stomach, and I just get the gurgles, and I'm like, I don't, something is wrong. But this has been, like, my whole life, that something's been wrong with my stomach. And I always tell my wife, I think it has something to do with, like, my sugar intake. And ultimately, I found out that's probably not the case. But anyway, yeah, good luck to me. Um, but ultimately, I, I, I thought I knew what the problem was, and I was like, I just need to cut back on that, and then, you know, my problem's going to be fixed. But I've gone, you know, like 20 years just ignoring that, even though I think that will fix the problem, but I won't do anything about it. What do I have? I have the knowledge, but I don't have the, the obedience to go with my knowledge. And in this scenario, I'm smarter than I am obedient. And, and I think this is really, the other good thing about this is, is this is just true regardless of what you believe. Like if you walked in here this morning, you're like, I don't really know about this whole Jesus thing. Like I'm questioning all that. that that's, a, that's actually okay. This is just t- true. We all betray our own standards, right? We all have some, some standard by which we live by, and each of us is generally betraying that standard. But information doesn't always equal or automatically equal transformation in our life. We're generally smarter than we are obedience. We don't have like a knowledge problem. We have an obedience problem. And for those of you who are Christians in the room, um, I think we should be growing, right? I think we should be uh, growing in our intellect. We should be reading the scriptures. We should be um, taking these things in. But the reality is for some of us, we actually don't need much more knowledge. We need more obedience. This is what Jesus says in the book of John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, You'll keep my commands. And so a movement toward humility is from intellect to obedience. That's the first one. The second one is from cynicism to joy. We live in a time of experts and knowledge. There is unlimited amounts of content out there in our world. And there's this interesting word that's been kind of running around for a couple of years in uh, the church world. And it's this idea of deconstruction. I don't know if you, you've heard this, this word or this phrase um, but this idea of I'm, I'm, I'm in a phase where I'm just kind of deconstructing my faith. And usually what that um, is attached with is, you know, less church attendance and less Bible reading and, you know, less community, which is, which is a bit ironic. Um, I, I went through a little bit of this a couple of years ago. I was in an accountability group where um, six of us friends would meet Friday mornings at 630 in the morning. And we were super committed. We would show up and we would just dive right in. Uh, we would skip a lot of the formalities. How was your week? We would skip most of that, and we would say, does anybody have anything that they really feel like they need to talk about? And the beginning of it was incredible. Um, guy shows up and says, you know, like, hey, marriage is just hard right now. You know, we just had our second kid, and um, things are just tough. Another guy would, you know, say, like, guys, I, I, I think I want to quit my job. And we would just sort of be there and begin to attack whatever, whatever was going on. And then there was this subtle shift on Friday mornings, where we began to talk about. We were all connected to different churches. We would come and we would talk about the purpose of the church. Um, we would talk about the validity of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Uh, we would talk about if those were inspired. And after a while, um, our attendance, you know, started to slip. We weren't really excited about meeting anymore, and. Um, eventually uh, two of us just ended up leaving the group after telling the guys, like, guys, I want to go back to sharing about the real things of life and really being a part of each other's life um, to just deconstructing these ideas. And I love what Dallas Willard uh, says uh, to this idea. He says, we live in a culture that has cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt It's a fascinating way to think about um, what it is that we're looking for within our faith and and how we're taking steps towards becoming more like Jesus. And I think a step that we need to take is from cynicism to joy. My daughter, uh, this morning we were getting coffee, and I told the the barista that my daughter loves to say, wow. And he said, can you say wow? And she goes, wow. (laughs) And I'm like, that's it she's captured this idea of joy like there's nothing there's nothing cynical within her yet and i'm just like please don't be cynical like dad be like mom all right and so maybe i just ask you quickly um as you're sitting here as you're thinking about that where has the child been sucked out of you like that that imagination the joy has, has it been taken from you in in some way Maybe your curiosity has been taken. I know my wife and I have been talking a lot about that lately. How do we just be curious people, asking good questions? So let's look at this third movement, two more, and then we'll wrap up. Um, Movements towards humility is from me to others. And so Jesus here is actually giving us a vision of what it looks like to be in community with each other in, in the sense that it's not inwardly focused, but we're actually pushing outwardly a community that's focused on the least and the little and the lost. And so he gives this warning in verse 5. This is fascinating. In verse 5 he says this. It's scary. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And so Jesus it's almost as if you know, he's sharing this encouraging message, you, you need to be humble, and then he starts talking about what it would look like for causing one of these children to stumble. And he's looking, I feel like that's the moment where he's you know, looking deeply and intently at the disciples, and he's saying, are you guys listening? And I have to make this so bold so I know that you're listening. Why is he doing that? I think He's looking at his disciples so intently like this and the requirement of hum- humility for them because they are the ones in which um, they have the most danger of standing in the way of them. He, they have the most danger of, of thinking that they're better than these little ones of low status. And so actually their greatness will lie in them stooping down to humbly serve children to stand up for the marginalized and for caring for them. And, and sometimes I think we, we read a passage like this and we say, um, I, and this is my fear actually in, in preaching this message is that you walk away and say, uh, what was the sermon about? Oh, well, you know, we just have to be more humble. Okay, you know, how, right? H- how is it that we're to do that? So uh, let, me, let me kind of zoom in here. I want, I want to get practical for a second about what it looks like to move um, from myself to, to an outward experience. Um, I realized recently um, I do something that's really annoying. It's annoying to me. It's annoying to other people, and I'm sure you do it too. Um, I was talking with a friend. Uh, we were eating some ramen, and he started telling me about his favorite ramen spot, and I was like, oh, that's, that's a great spot. But my spot is so much better and their noodles are more dense and, you know, the, the water doesn't soak into them better. And I went there with this person and I, I just took over and started um, taking the conversation. And, you know, it was kind of like, oh, okay, no big deal. And then I was sitting with a, another friend um, a couple Fridays ago and uh, he got a text message and he was on his phone. And I looked at him and I was like, is, every, is everything okay? And he's like, man, um, my grandma, like my grandma just died. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. And I, I literally didn't know what to say. And he kind of shared quickly that, you know, he wasn't that close with her, but, you know, it means a lot to his dad. And I was like, oh, man, I remember when I lost my grandma and I was 14 and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I started just kind of processing, you know, with him. But what I realized is I, I made that actually about me rather than what my friend was going through and what my friend was experiencing. And I think true humility is to stop connecting every experience and every conversation with ourselves. And that's where it becomes really practical, right? It's those moments where you say, well, you know what, I, I want to inject myself into this. I want to share my experience. And there's a time for that, no, no doubt about it. But it's to pause and say, what, what if this person is just trying to share their experience and I don't actually need to override it with mine? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, do not imagine... That if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not sort of uh, be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think of him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easy. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's humility, right? Humility is um, be, the ability to forget about yourself completely. And that's a movement that I think we need to make. And in some ways, you, you could look at that and you could argue, well, children are really bad at that, Russell. You, know? <laughs> you, might, you might be thinking, you know, yes, but I think there is something about a child who's, who is beginning to think about other people. Right? We're teaching children to share at a young age. It's this beautiful and honorable thing. And what are are we inviting them to do? We're not inviting them to think about humility. We're inviting them to think about other people before we think about themselves. So what's the last one? This last movement is from independent to dependent. What's more dependent than a child, right? And for some of you in the room with children, you're like, I I just did my taxes. Oh, that child dependent credit, guys. that's, That's the first time I got that. That's amazing, all right? It's amazing. But... I have to take care of her too, right? So it kind of evens out, I guess. But what is more dependent than a child? Nothing, right? Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think this is the main, the main, the main thing that Jesus is trying to communicate. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you've become dependent on Jesus Christ. That, that, that's the message. And I know that sounds a bit exclusive. You might say, ooh, that sounds a little bit tough, right? But let me, let me show you this. What if independence is ultimately a myth, right? I, I, know, I know culture is saying, you know, be independent. Do what you want, when you want. That's, that's the message that's, that's being said, right? You can take care of yourself, and you're in control. And if you feel out of control, work harder, and you're going to be a, a complete and independent person. But the reality is, even as you walked in here this morning, you were dependent on something to bring meaning and purpose to your life. Right? You can push everyone out. You can, you can say, you know what, I got this myself. I'm going to do my own thing. I can make my own money. I got this all myself. And the reality is, is you're still dependent on something outside of yourself uh, to maintain your life. And the beautiful thing about uh, that on one hand is that you get to choose what that is, right? You and, I, you, you and I actually have the ability in our life to say, I, I get to be dependent on this thing. And in, in one sense, that's freeing, right? I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, my daughter, um, she, just, she just turned one, and so she's, she's actively becoming um, a sinner, I was going to say. Uh, she's actively becoming more independent, right? And so yesterday, we have this spiral staircase in our apartment, and so I'm walking down the spiral staircase with, holding my daughter, and she doesn't want me to hold her anymore. But obviously that's, you know, that's not an option. And so she's swinging her arms and she ends up slapping me in the face. And, you know, it's a moment where I'm like, don't react. You know, my wife told me how to do this, you know, and I'm like, no, you know. And, and so what ends up happening is I realized after, I'm like, wow, like that was, you know, I don't, I don't want her to, you know, to hit other people but I realized it was, it was almost laughable in the moment because the only reason she could hit me in the face was because I was holding her up. And I think it's the same with us. We're, we're dependent. We're, the reality is, is we are dependent on something. But we have to realize we just need to accept that, call it out, and choose the right thing. To be independent or to be dependent, but to be dependent on what God is saying is his son, Jesus. And so some of us today, I think that's the application, is that some of us actually just need to declare our dependence. We need to say, you know what, God, I I give up trying to organize my life. I'll obey you. I'm not going to keep going after my own inconsistent inclinations. I'm going to do what you say. And the, the irony of that is that's where actually true freedom is found. True freedom in our life is found dependent and attached to Jesus Christ. And some of us need to call that out. If you're not, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, maybe somebody dragged you here or, you know, uh, you found out about this place, I, I would just invite you to think about what is it that you are dependent on? There's something that you're leaning your life on for meaning and purpose and security. And I would just ask you uh, really simply is how's it working for you? Like truly, how, how's it working for you and what is it doing in your life? And so these four, obedience, joy, others, and dependence. And who lived life better than any one of these four? And it was Jesus, right? Though he had freedom, he was full of obedience to the Father. Though he experienced the greatest suffering, he was the pure embodiment of joy. Though he was God in the flesh, he gave his life away for others. And though he needed nothing, he relied on his Father till the very end. To me... That's the best news there ever was. Let's pray. God, I love you so much, and um, thank you for this community, for these people, and uh, a lot to stew on um, about who you are and um, this good news message that you send, and as I even think about Ways in which I need to um, renounce myself and to begin to think more about um, living and looking like a child. I I pray that you would um, challenge me this week, that you would call me to something greater, and to know that um, my striving um, won't save me. Um, But God, as I take and ingest this message by your Spirit, that I would become more like your Son Jesus, knowing that the work he has done is finished. And it's good news. It's your name we pray. Amen.